Um, this is an important class that we have asked everyone in the church to come to for this quarter. Never done this before. We did during the COVID era when we were uh, uh, in the gym, but this is more uh, strategic from an educational standpoint, what we think the church needs to be really aware of biblically for several reasons that I'll lay out. The format that I will follow is um, there is a special report done by our denomination that I'll introduce a bit um, as I do further introduction, but it has 12 statements, and it's designed that way so that we can go through 12 statements with you uh, as a church as lessons, and that's how we'll, we'll progress through this. What I'll do is I'll read the statement at the beginning and then lecture through the pieces of the statement, and then I'll allow for about 10 minutes of questions. If you have a general question that applies to what was said, and you think it'll help the whole group, ask it. If it's something more specific, needs more time, contact me outside of this. If you email me a question regarding something related to it, within a few days I'll usually be able to get back to you, if not sooner. Um, but just think through you know, what it is, because sometimes it, uh, there's, you can imagine a bunch of people must be thinking the same thing and ask that question, and I'll try to do my best to answer it. If I can't answer it, then I'll tell you that, and I'll figure out an answer, I'll research an answer, and give it to you the next time. I want to you know, answer it. Uh, my wife sometimes says, I always, whenever she asks me trivia stuff, I just ask, I answer whether I know the answer or not, just because I know she wants to hear an answer, and she knows not to believe it. Like, how tall is that bridge? I think it's 250, you know, I don't know, but I won't do that with this. So, as it relates to this class, it's too important to, uh, to not be careful. So, with that, the other, the other thing is, from time to time, I'll read portions. I would much rather, you know, lecture extemporaneously, that's my normal approach, but this is being recorded, and these are particular things that I want to get right sometimes. So you might see me going to read a statement. That's because I want to be very careful about how I say things, because nuance is everything in this discussion, in this, uh, and, and we're trying to deal with um, understanding what the Bible teaches about human sexuality and then how it relates to the day in, the day in which we live. So that's uh, part of how I'll approach uh, going through these lessons together. So 30 minutes of lecture, 10 minutes of discussion, and then we really have to end at 1040 because musicians come in and we have to clear out and clear back and come back in for the worship service. The gym just is not conducive for uh, a class this size, and I know those seats will keep you awake, so that's good. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us by it. Lord, give us humility as we study this topic. It's, it's such a challenging topic it's, uh, in, every, in any age, but especially seems to be uh, on the forefront of things that we are dealing with today uh, in this time, in this place. So I pray for uh, wisdom, pray for humility, pray that you give us teachable spirits and help us to be patient and um, listening, uh, listen well to others and to have compassion for each other as we are all sinners with manifold ways in which um, our flesh works against uh, your will. But Lord, we are redeemed and we are in Christ now and we thank you for what that means. But we need constant aid from your spirit constantly, minute by minute, second by second. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's three reasons why we thought this class was as important as it is to have the whole church uh, sit under it. Um, the first main reason for a joint Sunday school on the topic of human sexuality, um, it's kind of a twofold reason to start. Um, Christians need to be aware of what Scripture teaches as it relates to human sexuality, so it can help us obey what God's Word says, but also to help us have a thoughtful um, response or answer or explanation when we're asked, what is our position? What do Christians believe concerning these things? On the personal practice front, um, it's just helpful for us 
to read what God's Word says and wash our mind with the water of the Word because um, our desires will work against that at times, and then, of course, cultural pressures will work against that. And I'm not just talking about human sexuality. I mean, um, if I'm constantly struggling with coveting things, like I really am never content because I want what you have. I, why can't I have a car like you have? And it's constantly gnawing at me all the time. I have to wash my mind with the water of the Word so the Holy Spirit reminds me of my contentment in Christ and who I am in Christ. And I don't need to have all these things. These things won't make me happier and, and so forth. But yet I continue to struggle with those desires. Now, I don't wish for you to label me going henceforth covetous Christian, and I'm not going to have a conference over it, but I am saying to you that it's still real. I'm still struggling with it. And so knowing what God's Word says with the Spirit can help correct those things, help me to mortify those things in my life. And I can list you know, five other things like this. So knowing what God's Word says will help us in our personal practice. And if I have that desire where I'm constantly looking at what you have, thinking I should have it and want it, I'd be made whole if I had it, I can know that that's, that's not, that's not a, a holy desire. That's a sinful desire. That's what it is. And so I go from that point rather than be confused about, well, is it, is it all right too? Is it okay? Well, this is what... There's, a, there's important corrective that the Scripture gives us. And we are designed by God a certain way. When we operate against the design, it hurts us and we are discontent and we lack joy. We get discouraged. We get depressed. That's true across the board. So the Word offers that corrective to us that helps shape our thinking. And it also helps us explain ourselves in a, in a, in a loving way, in a, in a way that is cogent and people can understand. The second reason why we're doing this class this way, it's related to the first on this topic of human, sexual, human sexuality, um, the, re, the matters of gender and sexuality are really at the forefront of our cultural movement. I don't probably need to tell you that. The Oberfell decision legalizing gay marriage in 2015 it simply magnified where we are in this ongoing sexual revolution that's been um, really part of American culture for some time. Um, if you want to really research how we've gotten to this moment, there is no better resource. It's the definitive resource right now on this topic, and this is Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, the history of the sexual revolution, how we got to where we are, you'll find it thoroughly here. He's coming up with a shorter version of this soon enough, and we'll teach it in a Sunday school class in the future. But I commend this to everyone who's just wondering, how did we get to this place where it seems so prevalent and so in our face? But the Oberfall decision in 2015 um, really put the cultural pressure, because now when you make it a law, that means all the schools have to teach and promote it. That means anything tied to government or tied to which we've discovered is everything seems to be tied in some fashion, um, it's going to get promoted and pushed on the same level of civil rights-type gains that happen, um, like the, the, racial move, the racial equality movements and such. They just commandeer that and then go along with, so you know what happened there will happen here, only this is a, a much different situation, we would say. So because of the cultural focus on the matters of gender and sexuality, no Christian church, no Christian school, no mission, no college, no organization that calls itself Christian in any way will, left, will be left alone. No organization, no corporation will be left alone, as you found out already in your workplaces probably. But especially for us in the church, we have a school. Many of us are connected with various missions, Christian missions and organizations and such. All, I mean, Salvation Army is going to come under fire, um, even though they're doing more than anybody else when it comes to reaching the poor and, um, and those who are struck with poverty. You know, their position on this comes to the forefront. So in this light, those holding a biblical position on gender and sexuality will likely be paying a price for this in some fashion. Already, in some ways, they already are. 
So it's important for every member of the church to be aware of what Scripture teaches so in some sense you know why you're paying this price or what you're paying this price for. Um, Someone said that being an expert on the Word of God and what it says will help you always know what to say to culture or respond to culture. The third reason why we're doing this This class is joint class on the topic of human sexuality. Our own denomination is in the midst of an effort to clarify a particular nuance of the sexuality discussion. Um, At this point, the PCA, our denomination, is not advocating for homosexual, normalizing homosexual practice or marriage, gay marriage, anything like this, or any of the wider LGBTQ agenda. Uh, They're not trying to promote it within Christianity. You see that in liberal Protestantism, where they called gay Christianity or side A Christianity. And in that version, it just simply means it's normalized, that homosexual relationships are normalized, gay marriage is normalized, and that's part of Christianity. That would be the liberal brand of Protestant Christianity. You see a lot of the mainline denominations promoting that. Um, That's not a debate in the PCA, so I don't want people to have that idea. Um, The side B position is what is more at debate, at least in a minority of our denomination. The side B says that a Christian can be oriented homosexual, they can be gay, but they should simply remain celibate. Um, They can't help who they are, that's their orientation. That's just, that's a result of the fall, but it's not uh, necessarily their personal sin issue, it's just the way they were born, oriented, that's their personhood. But the Bible's clear that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that sexual practice is reserved for that, so therefore they have to be celibate. That's side B, it's called side B celibate, or gay celibate Christianity, or uh, different versions of, of those titles. But side B is typically what it's been uh, being labeled the most, I think, among those who are discussing it in our denomination. Rosaria Butterfield put it this way, side A and side B both support the idea that sexual orientation is an accurate category of personhood, legitimate to categorize someone by their sexuality. Therefore, they both, they both are outside the bounds of biblical teaching, and she's right. That's not a biblical way to identify a person is by sexuality or their sexual desires. Um, sexual orientation is not an accurate category for personhood according to Scripture. Um, we'll get into this throughout the report. We are not identified or defined by whatever sinful tendency it may be, and there are many of them. In effort to respond to this erroneous side B thinking, the PCA commissioned a study committee to pen this paper that we are going through. Um, So there are 12 statements provided in the final paper. I emailed everyone in the church the full report. You can get it very easily online. It's pretty thick. But it gives us 12 summary statements. That's what we're going to work through together. And you have on that little insert the first statement and it'll build on each one. Um, Clearly stated, the biblical position is that while people may be born with various sinful desires, and we are, there are multiples of them that we can have, sinful desires and affections, the gospel promises freedom from the guilt of those sinful desires, um, the punishment for those sinful desires. There is forgiveness for any of our sinful desires or actions through Christ. No sin that you could commit in the future or in the past is is outside the pale of God's grace for you. So if you struggle with same-sex attraction or you struggle with any kinds of sexual lust, like most everybody at some level has some sinful desire in this area, or you name the other areas of materialism or on and on and on, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That's not what we're talking about. Christians can struggle. The key word is struggle. They recognize it's a sinful desire and struggle against it. You're you're battling it till glory. That's not what's being spoken about or condemned here in any of what we're saying. It's the idea that you 
are oriented this way, and the gospel cannot ultimately change that orientation. You just need to obey in this, as far as the outward activities are acting out on it. Um, this is the difference. We go from being in Adam to in Christ. Um, the gospel is declarative. Your sins are forgiven. But the gospel also has a transformative effect that leads into our sanctification. Um, we are defined by being in Christ. That's your primary identity, no matter what you're struggling with, that you're really struggling with. In Christ, there can be a certain amount of victory over sinful desires and even empowerment to pursue God's model for human sexuality. Uh, the biblical position does not deny the effects of sin on all of us, and it doesn't minimize the real struggle. It's just honest about it. But the bibl biblical position proclaims that in Christ, we are new creatures with a real capacity to experience victory in this area of life. So the problem is the side B position takes this particular struggle and puts it in its own category and then treats it that way. And it, everything really kind of falls apart and falls away poorly because of that. Um, we have to view sin on the whole, not just in one area of our lives, one area of who we are. With that bit of a preface, let's go to the statement itself, and we'll work through the statement. The statement on marriage, I'll say it in the whole and then take it bits, uh, piece by piece. We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of the husband and wife, for procreation and the raising together of godly children, and to prevent sexual immorality. Marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. All other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex activity of any kind, are sinful. Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires, nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. We all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not an unpardonable sin. There is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation, and no sin so big it cannot be forgiven. There is hope and forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ." The very first statement, we affirm that marriage is, be, is to be between one man and one woman. Thankfully, we've been walking through Genesis together, and this should be familiar to you. In Genesis 2, the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is all a way to, to describe to the reader and to Adam how he is not complete on his own. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field after he's done all this. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I cannot stress how important foundationally this passage is. It sets up every other biblical writer's understanding, including Jesus himself. It's God's design that one man with one woman, one flesh, and uh, in that relationship, everything is defined as happening there. The sexual intimacy component is part of a relationship. It's not the defining feature at all. It's part of it. 
yes, because of the fall, all of our de desires and such are messed up. But go back to the design. Lots of time you'll hear people say, well, the Bible doesn't really speak much about homosexuality. That's because the pattern at the very beginning puts everything else outside the pale of it. It gives the parameters right there. So it's an easy question to answer. Is this legitimate? Well, does it fit this structure? One man, one woman in this context. Does that fit it? If it doesn't, then you have your answer because you can come up with a thousand perversions. Uh, but those are all governed. And the, Bible, the biblical writers always respond to this design when describing it. Um, more could be said, but we'll leave it there. Jesus himself very carefully affirms in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is Jesus speaking. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer one flesh, but therefore God has, what God is therefore joined together, let not man separate. That's the words of our Lord confirming and affirming what the Bible's pattern and understanding and design is for marriage. In our confession of faith in the 24th chapter, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. The occasions of polygamy in the scripture were sinful. They were not okay. God never said they were okay. They always ended up in disaster. They were part of the culture that was around them that was still there, and a lot of the problems they faced were because the whole of their culture wasn't yet in line with what Scripture revealed as uh, right behavior before him. The next statement in the, in the, the next sentence, I should say, in the statement, sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Um, Proverbs 5 is a nice, um, a nice simple statement on this. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Pause for a moment. If you have porn in your life, get it out of your life. It's evil, it's wicked, and it's worse than some of the stuff we talk about here, but no one mentions it. These things are not part of our marriage relationship. If you're single, get the, it, you're cheating against your future husband or wife. And, and so on and so forth. I mean, I only have 30 minutes. But the point is, um, marriage is where sexual intimacy is given. That's the place. It's not outside of that place. Uh, yes, there's God's grace when we fall outside of that because that's, that's, the gospel all, is all-encompassing. But while we're talking about homosexual practice, let's talk about the whole of sexual purity to be practiced by all of God's people, whether married or unmarried. Uh, marriage was instituted by God for, and it lists three different things. Mutual help and blessing of the husband and wife. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there's a mutual help that happens. You have companionship with your spouse. Um, you're not alone in that case. And you also, not are, you're not only not alone, you have a complementarian relationship where you just bring to the table things that make you stronger together than if you were apart. Um, clearly, God's grace is, is it poured upon people who are single. This is talking in the norm or in the ideal, if you will, um, but that can be honored by everybody, whether they're single or married, just recognizing what is being described here, the mutual help and blessing of the husband and the wife. Second, the reason for marriage, another reason for marriage, is procreation and the raising of godly children together. In Genesis 1, the Lord said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So being fruitful and multiplying, procreation, is a major reason for marriage. Uh, to propagate the race, the race that's made in God's image, to do the work of dominion over the earth, to be God's vice regents, to shine the glory of God as his worshipers. In Malachi chapter 2, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's Malachi the prophet speaking about the broken covenant relationships and marriage they had as a way of also describing how the people had broken covenant with their God. But it describes godly offspring or offspring coming from the the marriage relationship as part of God's will for marriage. The third reason why a marriage is the purpose for marriage or help of marriage is to prevent sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 7, um, but because of the temptation of the sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So we're made as sexual beings. That's part of who we are, and it's to be expressed in marriage. If we're not married, there can be challenges with that. God gives grace. Again, don't hear me um, dissing anybody in the single category, whatever your case may be, or you're a widow, or whatever the case, or you're not married yet, whatever, you know, all these things um, God gives grace to, but recognize that the chief way that you can safeguard against sexual immorality would be in the marriage relationship, at least one of the best ways uh, by God's design. Later in that same chapter, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So those are just a few of the passages that remind us that uh, sexual expression, reserved for marriage, and it's going to be natural that we would have those desires in general there to be expressed in marriage. Um, The same chapter of the Confession, chapter 24, the second section says, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. So the Confession gathers those same things. Um, the statement that the committee did just modernizes that statement. The next statement, marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. We know from Ephesians 5 um, that I won't read all of it to you, but Ephesians 5 shows the, the relationship between Christ and the church and analogizes it with the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And at the end of the passage, it says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's something built into the marital relationship that actually can express the relationship between Christ and the church. It can express the gospel, in fact. Um, and this is very dynamic, it's very complex, but it, it is meant to have a spiritual message attached to it. It's also a spiritual union. The same analogy is used throughout the Bible. You know in Revelations 19, Revelation 19, the marriage supper, uh, uh, about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So the church is the bride, Jesus is the bridegroom, and there's a picture of that beautiful union that happens between Savior and church. And marriage has built into it that revelation, at least at some level. And so that's an important feature of marriage. Going on to the statement, all other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex activity of any kind, are sinful. So 
outside of the biblical design from Genesis 1, 1 through 3, anything outside of that, all the other forms of lust and same-sex activity of any kind are sinful. It could be any manner of sexual expression outside the marriage relationship. Um, that's, is this, should, you know, before you're married, can we do this? Well, any sexual activity, don't think of it only in terms of, uh, I mean, these things obviously are to be discussed, but um, you just have to be honest about what you're participating in physically because of what it means. It's not just a physical act. There's a, you're a body-soul nexus, and so is another person. And there's no way to just be purely physical about something. There's always a spiritual component in everything you do, especially sexual intimacy. So that's to be reserved for the marital relationship. Um, there are clear biblical prohibitions against particular sexual practices um, that just really spells out some of the things uh, that would uh, come to play or the culture around would have been participating in when God reveals his word. We find these in Leviticus especially. It says very explicitly, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. These things still are practiced the world over. Um, these have been practiced as long as people have been around. Um, anything someone could imagine could probably, has probably been practiced. That's just the truth of our depravity. That's what we could do. All of us know the pits and depths of our hearts. In Leviticus 20, if a man lies with a male as a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, that's a specific referent, time referent to Israel and their time. It's not meant to be a timeless, oh, this is what we should be doing. Um, but recognized in its time and place and why it had to sep- the Israel had to separate itself from the Canaanites especially. Romans 1 is the most explicit expression in the New Testament when it says in the middle of Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Basically, people ignoring God's revelation. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations with those who are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Now a quick pause and side note. You'll notice the, the digression in Romans 1. They, they deny God, and then the judgment is to go into this, this giving over of their passions. Um, so certainly one could argue we live in a day and an age where uh, the sexual, sex and gender dysphoria and, and um, all, all the perversion that's related could be actually the giving over from all the other sins. You know, you kill 60 million babies over the course of time, you're going to pay for that somehow as a culture. Maybe that's it. I can't say that definitively because the Bible doesn't declare it, but Romans 1 shows a digression. That doesn't take it out of the realm of um, the gospel still being able to reach. It just shows that it can be a very deep-seated sin issue um, because of the way it comes upon, uh, it comes upon uh, mankind. But it's not just this one that's mentioned in Romans. There's just a lot more. It mentions that. Uh, It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know... uh, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's Romans 1. 
The gospel sets us free, but yet recognize that a society can really be under a, a heavy hand of judgment for many reasons. In 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The sexually immoral as well. Um, if, we're, we're, if this is our identity, this is, this is our given over practice, uh, we're not believers. Struggling is one thing. It's not struggling is what we're talking about here. 1 Timothy 1, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else, uh, liars, you know, a perpetual lying. Um, all these things uh, are mentioned in the same vein, uh, but you don't have the same uh, identity attached to these. In Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the sounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Um, in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. We say it this morning in our profession of faith. Um, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? Well, where is, what is adultery? Where does it get its definition? Well, by Exodus, it's already had the base work of Genesis 1. So anything outside, and by that time, you're in the Egyptian times, and there have been all manner of examples of the way things outside of God's plan would have been demonstrated. The people would be knowledgeable of this. So now the Ten Commandments come to reveal, in their context, God's standard about sexual purity or about marital purity. Same thing in, some, in many senses. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, number 139, what are the sins forbidden in the Seventh Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Seventh Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, affections, and it has a list like two paragraphs long. Um, So there's a lot of things. The last statement of this statement on marriage Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires, nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. Here's the practical point, everybody. I think we know that we should be able to speak openly about this. You can be married and still struggle with same-sex attraction. You can be married and still struggle with lust after people that are not your spouse. You can be married and be addicted to porn. There can be sexual sins committed against one another in marriage. Marriage does not in and of itself solve our struggle with sin and sexual purity. It's an ongoing struggle for all of our lives. Hopefully no one ever looks at someone else's uh, declared struggle and think, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them a sinner. Uh, That is not the spirit of the gospel of someone who's saved. Someone who's saved is humbly recognizing the same kinds of struggles confront us. We're struggling with it. You can be a Christian and struggle with these things. That's not what's being said or promoted here. Um, Just to be clear. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, the corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ, pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. There's nothing as Christians that we don't understand about sin. The difference is we're forgiven for those sins. We have the power of the Holy Spirit who's made us new to recognize them for what they are, and the Spirit gives us aid to fight against them, to struggle against them, to kill them, to mortify them. That's what we have as believers. We don't lose any sense of sin or uh, sinful affection. We just gain identity in Christ before God. He accepts us in Christ, declared. Then he works to transform us in our actual lives to fight against those sins. That's the practical reality. It says in the statement, we all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not the unpardonable sin. There's no sin so small that it cannot deserve damnation, that it does not deserve damnation. This is also true. Remember this. No sin so big that it cannot be forgiven. It's exactly what it says in our confession as well. 
There is hope and forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. And, and there's a manifold verses that speak to this. Of course, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest in him and what he has done for you. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Whatever sin you're dealing with, go to Christ with it and say, I know this is sin. Please forgive me and he will always forgive you. You always, he, he, for you to even do that means he has worked in your heart to believe that he's your savior. So if you have that sense about you, that you rest in him, you, know what, you, you don't deny what's sin in your life. You just know that Christ pays for it. You're still suffering with it, struggling with it. You don't know how to beat it maybe. You need help. You're a Christian. You're just struggling with your sin. That is not at all what we're trying to describe the Bible's teaching as. It's something completely different that's embodied in what the side B position is even saying and certainly what the side A is saying. In Acts 2, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Let every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you receive aid that you need to fight against this. And the last passage I'll mention is Acts 16. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Give up this, do this, do that. That's how he says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So that's the first statement, and it's about marriage, and it has to do with the, value, or the benefits of marriage, why it's designed, and what things fall outside of marriage, because that will then, and, and why they're sinful, and that will then help us understand uh, the rest of the report as it unfolds, the report being an explanation of, of the Bible's teaching.